Hello, welcome to another episode of Silk and Steel Podcast. I'm your host, Carl Za. Today we have something very special for you guys. I appear as a guest on the Around the Empire Podcast with Joanne Leong to talk about Hong Kong protest and its wider ranging impact. Have a listen. Welcome to Around the Empire. I'm your host, Joanne Leon. Around the Empire podcast is listener-supported independent media. Please pitch in patreon.com slash aroundtheempire or paypal.me slash aroundtheempirepod. Also, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash aroundtheempire. Carl Za joins us today for a wide-ranging discussion about colonial Hong Kong, the transition back to China, and the social and economic changes that developed. We analyze the current Hong Kong protests, the forces at work, and the prospects for a military crackdown or a peaceful resolution. Carl Za is an engineer, a historian, a podcaster, and a Caltech alum. His podcast, Silk and Steel, is about China, the U.S.-China Great Power Competition, and the history of empires, past and present. We recorded this on August 15th, 2019. Carl Zaz here on the show with us, talking to us from Bali. Hi, Carl. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. Hi, Joanne. Great to meet you, too. So Carl is in Bali and he's been surfing and I'm really jealous. <laughs> um, <laughs> since I think most of our listeners are probably going to know you already, but why don't you tell us a little bit, maybe take a few minutes to tell us about yourself uh, before we get started on the Hong Kong protests. Uh, sure. Um, I am Carl Zha. Um, I'm by software engineering by training and uh, I also run my own podcast called the Silk and Steel Podcast, which focuses primarily on China, um, with a special focus on Chinese history, culture, current events, politics, basically everything China-related I will talk about, um, and I love to talk. So thank you again for inviting me to the show, Joanne, because I have been a long-term fan of your show. Uh, it's it's really an honor to be finally on this show that I have been listening for so long. Um, so recently, I decided to uh, travel a bit in East Asia. I've been in China for a couple months, and now I'm in Bali, Indonesia, because uh, I love surfing. <laughs> this place <laughs> is great for surf. Uh, I mean, I'm basically living a tropical paradise right now, so I can't complain. And I'm actually going to try to um, see if I can just just live out here. I, I, I have a little bit saving, so I, you know, I, I quit my job and I, I leased a year, I leased a house in Bali for one year. Um, and, and right now I'm just trying to see if I can... Um, grow my Patreon following so that will enable me to stay in Bali <laughs> forever. I hope so. That would be fantastic. Yes. yes. Yeah, That's... my brother's a surfer, so um, 
I, I get that, uh, that lifestyle. Well, I mean, he's, you know, he's a business guy, but he, he serves every minute that he can. And he's also out on his Hobie cat uh, sailboat all the time too. Nice. So, uh, I live kind of close to the coast as are well, but excuse me. Are you in California? No, I'm in, in New Jersey. <laughs> a lot oh, different, but... oh, the water must be cold. Well, actually, might not be too bad right now. It's August, right? It must be. Yeah, warm. it's very warm. Yeah, uh, it, it's cold in June, but in July and August and September, even into October, the water's pretty warm. So, wow. and you know, you can wear a wetsuit, so you can yeah, stretch yeah. it. I mean, yeah. we, in SoCal, we always have to wear a wetsuit, except like two weeks in August. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, if we're lucky, like one month. So that's why I love Bali right now. Like every day, I don't need a wetsuit. I just literally grab my board and jump in and, and it feels so nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised at how cold the water was when I was in California. Uh, the ocean was freezing cold. Yes, we got that cold current coming all the way down from Alaska that goes all the way to, I think, Cabo, uh, Mexico. So, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, and I encourage people to... Uh, also, I've been uh, looking forward to talking to you. We've been in touch for a long time, probably a yes. year. Um, I think I first heard of you on the Warnerd yes. uh, podcast. I'm a big fan of that. And then I got in touch with, I mean, you know, I got connected with your uh, podcast and on yeah. um, Discord and things like that. So, I, you know, I'm glad that we finally did get a chance to do this. And, yes. um, you know, I was looking, really looking forward to talking to somebody who had some perspective on the Hong Kong protests, because as you know, uh, if you're still keeping track of Western media, yes. you know, we're getting, yeah, we're getting, we're getting an interesting perspective here. Um, and, you know, Carl, I would normally, I'd say up till about five years ago, maybe by default, I would be in favor of protesters if they were, you know, looking for more justice, more freedom, yes. or things like that. And yes. so by default, even if I didn't know that much about their culture or their country or the political situation, I would tend to side with them by yes. default. But yeah. I learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> yes. I learned some lessons uh, first with, the, with Ukraine. Yes. Um, it took me a while to figure out what was going on, but once I did, I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I do. I still do sympathize with common people, right? I mean, I'm always on the side of just the people. Uh, And then when the same thing happened in Syria, it's like, okay, yeah, this is not the way it's being portrayed. It's a lot more complicated than that. And so I'm a lot more cautious now. Mm -hmm. uh, And I, I sort of get the whole color revolution thing. And even if it's not a color revolution, I, I get that uh, different countries will side with their dissidents, right, to yep. just to, you know, um, just to undermine each other and yes. or, you know, even just as a propaganda tool. So with the Hong Kong protest, I was a lot more leery about what was going on. Again, you know, I I want these people to have a good life. I want yes. them to be 
to have freedom of speech. I, you know, I, I don't want them to live in a police state, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Same thing we want for our own people, right? Right. So, um, but I've been to Hong Kong, actually. I spent a couple of weeks in Hong Kong. It's a beautiful city. I, it's I, really I, a one. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. Uh, and now this is a couple, this is some decades ago, right? This is, uh, was early in my career and I went over there to, um, I actually worked out in the new territories. I stayed. That's not like the boondocks. Oh, it was really in the boondocks. Yeah. I mean, it was urban, but it was very, uh, you know, they were still really struggling. It was a very poor area. Um, and this is before the handover. This is during the transition period, so it was still technically uh, whatever. It was still British, they, uh, British yeah. colony, yeah. It was still British, but the Chinese had already really started to um, get much more involved. Like the hotel I stayed in was actually owned by the Chinese. It was on Hong Kong Island, and then right. I used to take the I used to take the um, the metro. Yes. All the way out to the new territories, which was close to the land border with Chinese with China, yep. and um, it was a. I mean, the people were wonderful. Uh, yep. It was an American company, right? So, and so I was setting up uh, some IT in a in a warehouse out in the new territory. So I was there for a couple of weeks. I really got the sense of it. It's very easy for an American to uh, to make your way around in Hong Kong because at the time. Everything was in Chinese and English, so yes. you could, yeah. So and the people were wonderful, and the people I worked with, you know, we were technically we were employees of the same company, and I, uh, you know, they were just really wonderful. They, uh, this guy Harvey, they they adopt an English name uh, in addition to their Chinese name, yep. and you know, he insisted on taking me around to the, <laughs> showing me around to these night markets and things like that, and out to restaurants where. Um, you know, only the natives ate and, yes. you know, I just, I really uh, enjoyed myself and I appreciated it. And the population, one thing that I noticed is they're very sophisticated. I mean, yes. they speak numerous languages, yep. they're, um, very, uh, very uh, cosmopolitan. Yes. And um, so anyway, I feel like I have, uh, you know, things no doubt have changed in a couple of decades, but I'm sure that the sense of it is hasn't the culture is probably still similar. Yeah. So I feel like I do know a little bit about how things are there. Yeah. So I would, and and it was very peaceful. I didn't notice any uh, unrest. Uh, I didn't yeah. notice any you know heavy police presence or anything like that. Yeah. So when I see these things on TV, I'm like, wow, you know, what's what's going on here? And yeah. I guess last week there were. There was a scare because there was a video going around with the military uh, troop carriers, long lines of them. Oh, and it's actually just happening today, too. Today, Twitter was going crazy of, of all these videos of Chinese uh, military vehicles amassing on the, across the border from Hong Kong in the, in the Chinese city of Shenzhen. It, like mm. it's all like even Donald Trump tweeted retweeted that he retweeted Sean Hannity retweeting that same video. So, is that for real? The last time nothing came of it. There were these sort of ominous tweets about something very bad is going to happen, yeah. and also I saw 
a speech, um, I happened to catch it on Periscope, uh, the UK, sorry, the Chinese ambassador to the UK yeah. giving a speech. Yeah. Um, and so I listened to some of that. So I got a sense of, you know, how they're, they're not happy, uh, at all. It was yeah. kind of a, it was kind of a rant, right? It yeah. was, uh, and there was a lot of sarcasm in it, a lot of bitterness, let's say. Yeah, I mean, basically, the Chinese ambassador just tell uh, the world to fuck off. <laughs> yeah, sorry, can I say much. that word on the yeah, show? Yeah, yeah, no problem. And, and uh, he just basically said, this is, uh, you know, Hong Kong is part of China, and it's none of your business to interfere in our internal affairs, basically. Right, yeah. So anyway... Just giving that intro, of, you know, who we are and what we know and what our perspective right. is. Where where's a good place to start with this? Do you should we should we talk about the transition? Uh, should we? Yeah, I think it is. Um, maybe just I can just give a little brief background of Hong Kong and what is kind of given the what kind of drives the protests and the, some of the rationale and the discontent that's behind it. Um, because as people, most people probably already know, um, you know, British receive Hong Kong from China, uh, well, not really receive, but really just grab Hong Kong from China as a result of first opium war. And, and then, us, um, but then you already talk about new territory. So, so Hong Kong is actually, there was three parts. The Hong Kong Island was ceded to Britain after the first opium war. And then after the second Opium War, British uh, got another piece of territory. Is that's a Kui Long, Kui Long Peninsula. And then after 1895, after the first Sino-Japanese War, when Japan defeated China, that's when all the imperialist power realized that China is really weak. So they all moved in to do another round of carving up. That's when British uh, forced China to sign a lease on the new territory. That's a, the largest piece of land in Hong Kong um, that's but jutting off the mainland. And the lease was supposed to expire in 1997, right, after 99 years. So um, in the 1980s, when Thatcher was uh, prime minister of Britain, uh, she started negotiation with China and, and originally she wanted to renew the lease right after 1997 the Thatcher still wanted to keep Hong Kong and and maybe re renew it for another 99 years and Deng Xiaoping who was then the the spring leader of China said no not gonna happen and Thatcher then went to his uh, military brass and asked him to draft a plan uh, a contingency plan for defending Hong Kong from the from the mainland takeover, and at that point the military brass had to set her down and basically tell her, uh, "No, that's impossible." <laughs> and because Hong Kong depends everything on mainland, like Hong Kong uh, is not self-sufficient water. Uh, Hong Kong actually depends on mainland to de deliver its water. Ah. Uh, Yes, uh, the, uh, uh, a big pro a water project was actually constructed in 1960s um, for China to supply water to Hong Kong. And one of the reasons that, uh, you know, the communist China didn't simply take over Hong Kong 
um, it, when they totally could is because after 1949, after the communists come to power in China, there was a, basically a Western blockade on Chinese mainland. Um, so the only place that China could do business with the outside world was through the British colony of Hong Kong. And that is why, you know, China didn't simply do like uh, what India did in Goa, uh, just move troops in and take over. And that's another reason why Hong Kong was able to take off economically, because prior to 1949, Hong Kong was a relative uh, economic backwater compared to city like Shanghai, you know, because Shanghai was really the, the pearl of the Orient back then. But in 1949, as the communist troops were moving down to take take over Hong, uh, Shanghai, all the Shanghai capitalists and industrialists, they fled in mass to Hong Kong, taking with them their capital, their expertise. Um, and at the same time, there was a massive refugee wave from mainland due to the Chinese Civil War. Um, so that provided the cheap labor. And it's a combination of uh, the, the, the capital flight from mainland, the mass refugee wave um, pouring into Hong Kong to provide the cheap labor, plus that Hong Kong was then the only window for mainland to the outside world, that really created the condition for Hong Kong to boom. So the Hong Kong's glory days, you know, basically started from 1949 um, all the way, I say, up to the handover, 1997. Yeah, that's when I was there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so even after, um, so after Thatcher was forced to go back to negotiation table with Deng Xiaoping, um, in the end, she basically conceded there's no way Britain can keep Hong Kong. And uh, the deal was at end of the lease, 99-year lease on new territory, Brit Britain was going to hand over the whole thing to China, not just new territory, but also the Hong Kong Island, quite long, everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, but as as part of the deal, uh, the, they, they created what's called the Sino- um, UK uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration 1984 that China promised to keep the Hong Kong's existing capitalist system as is, right? There will be no change for 50 years until 2047. Um, that was the deal. So that this was called one country, two system. So Hong Kong will become part of China in 1997 but Hong Kong get to keep its separate system, the separate political institution, so everything separate. Right? That was the deal. Um, but it, with, with, under the British rule, right, Hong Kong didn't have democracy. They didn't have election. Um, but after 1984, after the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, then Britain decided to um, do limited democratic reform in Hong Kong, and that's when they introduce a limited uh, uh, elections. It, it, it's not one man one vote. They have a, they set aside like a, a block of votes for their legislatures for like say the business community, right? And mm -hmm. like the, the doctors and the lawyers get some votes. Um, and China was okay with that um, because 
you know, something else happened in 1989, and that was the Tiananmen Square protest. Um, and after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, uh, China was basically isolated diplomatically. There, at the time, there were Western sanctions on China, and and also the Hong Kong was pretty rattled by the the, the crackdown because at the time, most of the Hong Kong like. Just like most of the mainland, a lot of people's sympathy were with the student protesters. And so when the protest was crushed, uh, there was almost kind of panic inside the territory of Hong Kong because they're, they're facing the, the commune, the pending handover, and they don't know what's going to happen to them. So to reassure uh, people in Hong Kong, uh, China agreed to keep the system, basically the British colonial structure as is, no change for 50 years. But something changed again in 1994 when the last British colonial governor, Chris Patton, um, was appointed. He decided he was going to expand the election rights uh, just literally three years before the handover, right? And uh. yes, at that point, that really irked China because China felt like they had an agreement with Britain. Um, you know, everything was going to stay the same. Uh, the, 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 the ink already just dried on the deal. And now they feel, um, you know, Chris Patton was totally reneging on the deal. And it was, a, it was a special time as well, because this was 1993, 94. You know, Soviet Union just collapsed. Uh, communism just collapsed in, in, in Eastern Europe. So China at the time was one of the last men standing. Yeah, <laughs> not feeling the... very confident. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, 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 so at the time, and also he was still kind of suffering under the Western sanction after uh, the aftermath of Tiananmen. But the, at the time, uh, you know, like it feels like, um, you know, there was a triumph of the Western liberal democracy worldwide. That's when... Um, Francis Fukuyama wrote the book, The End of History, right? And and everybody kind of expected maybe China will go the way of Soviet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, one of the, I, I used jokingly say, America's number one China expert, Gordon Chan. Um, he, uh. <laughs> yes, he was a lawyer, um, a tax lawyer at the, then in Hong Kong, and he wrote a book called The Calming Collapse of China. He published in 2001, <laughs> and, and he had to revise that date every year, ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, and it's at some point, maybe later on after you finish this uh, narrative, tell us, tell us about Gordon Chan, because yes, yes. Yeah, that he is a, a dominant voice here. You know, yes. uh, you can, so we're getting a lot of perspective from him. Yes. I don't know much about the guy, but, you know, maybe later on you can give us yes. some yes. insight he's, on he him. He has a very interesting background story. And he's actually just a couple of years, a couple of days ago, he was on scene and talking about Hong Kong. And so during the 1990s, when China looks like the next domino to fall, Chris Patton decided you know what, he's going to be the last colonial governor of Hong Kong. He was going to make a name for himself, leave a legacy, and he decided that legacy will be the electoral reform of Hong Kong. So he expanded the the, the election rights. Um, that really pissed off China. And, and um, after the uh, election of 1995, that's after the broadening of the electoral base, 
um, it, it brought in uh, many popular elected uh, leaders, what's later known, now known as the pan-democratic camp. So China was not happy about that. And so right after the handover, 1997, um, China just decided to dismiss the, 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 legislate, the, the legislative council that was elected in 1995 and replaced it with a provincial council. And then in 1998, they had a new election. But based on the pre-1994 uh, election reform laws, so, so Ooh, all, yeah. all the British uh, election laws like in the early 90s, and so, so what we're talking about limited democracy, right? Like not- They basically took voting rights away from people at that point. Exactly, exactly. And that was the first bad blood between the Chinese government and the pan-democratic camp uh, mm. of Hong, because all these legislators who just got elected into office in 1995 basically got booted out two years later, right? And among the leader of the pan-democratic uh, camp was Martin Lee. Um, he is very, um, so ever since then, he worked very closely with the United States uh, State Department and the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, in fact, if you go, if you search NED and Martin Lee, you will find like a Martin Lee uh, biography on the NED website. And, <laughs> and okay. Yeah, they, 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 so for China's perspective, um, it got this legislature that was designed um, under the colonial system, basically composed entirely of the Hong Kong business elite oligarchs, right, who for their own self-interest decide to bend the knee to China, right, and, and then on the other side is these uh, uh, rabble-rousers, uh, pan-democrats, who are very close with Washington, right? For, so for China, Chinese central government was a no-brainer. They were going to go with the, with the business elite, as the oligarchs. And, and so what happened is after 1997, um, you have this uh, business interest in Hong Kong entrench itself in the Hong, Hong Kong political system. And, and this had consequences for Hong Kong and, and the, the working class people of Hong Kong because during the colonial days, um, you know, British colonial days, it was pretty bad. There was a lot of racism uh, and, you know, it was basically a, a, not a democracy. Everything was made, uh, decision was made by the colonial governor. But, you know, at least there was some kind of balance of power between the British colonial governor and the Hong Kong local business community. Right. And um, one of the problem with Hong Kong is that the real estate price is insane. And, and people yes. think, oh, oh, that's normal because Hong Kong has such piece, small piece of land, uh, you know, like with seven million people, of course, it's going to be expensive. But I know you have been to Hong Kong and you have been to new territory. So you know how much land, empty land <laughs> is out there in Hong Kong yeah. and, and what Hong Kong government is doing it's artificially inflating the land prices by only uh, a lot, very small amount of land for development each year because the Hong Kong government derived most of its revenue from land sales to real estate developers. And, and uh, if you look at the richest man in Hong Kong, right, among the top 10, a huge majority of them are all real estate developers. 
<laughs> and these people now basically has a control of the Hong Kong Legislative Council <laughs> and making decisions. So um, what ended up happening was that uh, back then in the colonial days under British rule, the Hong Kong government was building, have a program to build 20 to 30k units. So 20 to 30,000 units of public housing for basically young families who are starting out, right? At like a subsidized price. Um, after 1997, <laughs> after, after the Hong Kong government was completely taken over the, by, by the local business interest, AKA real estate developers, um, when, when the Chinese government, when the Beijing government decided to take a very hands-off approach because you know, one country, two system. Um, they, they, one reason China also decided to take a very hands-off approach is because they didn't want to spark spoof all the capitalists of Hong Kong uh, to do another capital flight, right? Like, like, like back then when they uh, fled from Shanghai to Hong Kong in 1940. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and because, uh, uh, I don't know if you uh, remember, like I, just, just prior to the handover, a lot of Hong Kongers, middle-class and upper-middle-class Hong Kongers, immigrated to Canada, right? Because Canada has this like investment uh, immigration where you, if you invest certain amount, buy property, you can get green card. So a lot of Hong, like Hong Kongers with some means, with some money, they go to Canada, they buy houses in Vancouver, right? So get, get, get a green card or, or a Canadian passport, and then they go back to Hong Kong to, to work, to make money. But just in case, you know, they have the Canadian passport, they can run back to Canada. So, so, so it's, uh, so they really weren't confident. It was, it was unstable in their view. Yes. Yes. So it, it was that kind of environment that the Chinese government have to reassure the business people in Hong Kong, they're going to be totally hands-off. But what that meant was the, 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 the Hong Kong local real estate developers who dominated the, 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 the business landscape, they also dominated the political structure. And for, so, so Hong Kong government went from building 20 to 30,000 public unit housing per year to building just 2,000 units per year. I mean, it was a drastic change. And I don't know if you noticed, uh, but the, a lot of the Hong Kong protesters are on the street right now skewered to very, very young. It's mostly... Um, you know, people, there's a narrative that, that people say, oh, look, you know, Hong Kong are so unhappy with, with China that they rather go back to the, um, harken back to the, the British colonial days. But in fact, the most people who are protesting right now, they're the youth who are born or grew up in Hong Kong after 1997. They never experienced the British colonial rule, right? The, the only life they have known was, was Hong Kong after handover. And the, the life they have known in the, Hong, in the Hong Kong after handover is the Hong Kong that was dominated by the Hong Kong business oligarchs who basically jacked them by raising the real estate price sky high, right? There was a collusion between the real estate developer and the Hong Kong government to keep the real estate uh, housing prices high. There was a time when the first um, Hong Kong governor appointed by mainland China tried to do some, some sort of reform. Um, he tried to build 85K uh, unit of public housing instead, you know, to expand the, the public housing program. But he, he had a very bad timing because um, 
around that time, there was a, a, a rising, a real estate bubble was developing in Hong Kong prior to 1997. And then that Hong Kong got hit with the, uh, I don't know you, if you remember, the 1998 Asian financial crisis um, that hit Hong Kong really hard. And one consequence of that is the collapse of the real estate market. And so, you know, the business people, the middle class people in Hong Kong got really hurt by the by the housing collapse. You know, many of people went bankrupt. So they were they were very opposed to the government suddenly expanding the housing program to even more to to, to introduce more glut to the market. And and at the and the the real estate developers of Hong Kong leveraged that public sentiment, got people on the street, staged a huge protest. They totally scrapped the the, the new new government Hong Kong government program to build more public housing. So it's back to building only two thousand units of public housing per year. And what you have is, you know, Hong Kong does not have Hong Kong have all these young people in Hong Kong. They're facing an economic future that's not very that's that's actually quite similar to the millennials facing the West because. Um, you know, Hong Kong used to be a manufacturing hub. And then after China start opening up economically, all the Hong Kong capitalists move their capital and their factories into China. Okay, where, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yes, where the labor is much cheaper. So all the manufacturing in Hong Kong got hollowed out. And instead, of, instead, you know, only thing Hong Kong left economically was uh, financialization, right? Hong Kong became a financial capital for all the investment that's seeking to pour into China. And the second backbone of Hong Kong industry uh, is real estate, right? Just real estate and and finance. And and like this this transition to the service economy from a previously a manufacturing economy is just going as well for the Hong Kong youth as it's going well, for the millennial in U.S. right now, um, and and all these Hong Kong youth, they're facing with diminished economic prospect. They're facing with skyrocket housing prices. Um, so their discontent is real. And on top of that, you know, they know they don't have representation in their government, right? Their, their government is completely controlled by the oligarchs who are not exactly responsive to their needs. So there's That's real- very interesting. There's real discontent, real legitimate concerns, right? Real anger. But instead of, uh, you know, focusing the issue on the real issue, which is, uh, you know, the, the domination of the, the, the oligarch in, the, in, in all walks of life in Hong Kong, all this anger, discontent get redirected against the mainland Chinese. How about that? And because there's a, also a, a fundamental shift, balance shift between Hong Kong and mainland, because back in the 1980s, I remember because I live in the mainland China in 1980s, you know, for, for us, Hong Kong was this magical place. Where... Yeah, like that's what I that's what I'm very surprised about, because uh, and the ambassador in the UK just he said something like, you know, just across the border in. Uh, forgive me, is it Shen, Shenzhen? Shenzhen? Yeah, Shenzhen. Shenzhen. You know, he was saying that the people there basically have a better life and more, uh, much more economic opportunity yes. than they do in Hong Kong. And that 
shocked me. You know, I'm still not used to the new world. Uh, so it was the opposite of what I knew or what I, the yes. way I thought things were. Yes. So, yes, because uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, in 1980s, when China first opened up, Shenzhen was a fish was a fishing village. <laughs> it was what Hong Kong was before British took it over. And uh, what China did was they wanted to experiment with market capitalism, but they didn't want to do like a shock therapy, like Russia style, or like just do a one big uh, like one big thing and then uh, watch what happens. So they decided to make Shenzhen the guinea pig. Uh, they made Shenzhen so-called a special economic zone because it's across the border from Hong Kong. And if the if the market reform goes bad, you know what what happens in Shenzhen can stay in Shenzhen. So Shenzhen was giving very special you know um, privileges in in terms of a uh, you know uh, like administration and tax rules and to attract Hong Kong capital to cross the border. So initially all the manufacturing from Hong Kong went to Shenzhen, you know, factory got set up in Shenzhen because land was cheaper, labor was cheaper. You have like cheap labor from all over China going to Shenzhen to work in these export oriented factories. Um, but as, as um, time went on, Shenzhen was able to transition from purely manufacturing hub to a high tech center. Like yeah, now, today, Shenzhen is equivalent to like the Silicon Valley of China. Hong Kong, Shenzhen is a, is a high tech center of China. Like all the, um, the, you know, Shenzhen has its own stock market. Uh, I, I, a lot of people in U.S. today are probably familiar with the uh, commercial drone DJI, right? The, the, yeah. the, the DJI is probably the most successful Chinese brand. They're based in Shenzhen, right? And it's a Chinese drone, commercial drone company. They have like for 75% of the world market or something like that. But there are a lot of startup company just like DJI that's based in Shenzhen just because Shenzhen created that kind of a, a, like a tech friendly environment. Uh, on top of that, um, it's also because Shenzhen drew talent from all over China, you know, the population of 1.4 billion people. So they can get like people, engineers from top universities from, from all over China, from Beijing, from Shanghai, all over China. They all come go to Shenzhen to work as, like for Huawei, right? Huawei is based in Shenzhen, right? Oh, now, not okay. all the Americans know about Huawei. <laughs> and and so, so Shenzhen, it was like, became a boom town. Um, but back in the 80s, it was very different. Back in the 80s, uh, you know, a Hong Kong taxi driver could walk across the border to Shenzhen, you know, set himself up with a, with a mistress or two, you know, like very easily. Because back then, you know, mainland was so desperately poor. Um, anybody who has a job in Hong Kong can go to main Chinese mainland and live it up like kings, kind of like how the American ex expat are, you know, living it up in Southeast Asia, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. that kind of lifestyle. So, so in the eyes of Hong Kongers, mainland Chinese are like their very poor backward country bumpkin cousins, right? But then the, the, you know, in the new age, after the internet age, after the Shenzhen economically take off, 
now you have all these wealthy mainlanders coming to Hong Kong to shop for lux- luxury goods because you know Hong Kong has low, I think, has low luxury tax compared to mainland. So, so luxury goods like Louis Vuitton, everything is cheaper in Hong Kong. So a lot of mainland shoppers they go to Hong Kong to purchase luxury goods, and some of them come to Hong Kong to buy real estate property. So. So now Hong Kongers facing with their own bleak economic future, they blame everything on the mainland Chinese coming into the territory. They're blaming mainland Chinese for buying real estate property, driving up the housing prices. They're blaming like, uh, uh, so there was a milk powder scandal in China in early 2000. There was a baby milk powder manufacturing for that. They had some deadly chemicals in their baby milk formula, and that caused some deformities in some babies. It was a big scandal in China, and it totally destroyed reputation of all Chinese domestic uh, baby milk dairy uh, producers. So, so the Chinese consumers got spooked, and they they turned to overseas to source their baby milk formulas. And and a lot of Chinese mainland people do is they just hop across the border, go to Hong Kong, and buy by baby milk formula. So all these Hong Kong local residents are now complaining that all these mainlanders are coming over, buying up all the baby milk powders, leaving nothing for Hong Kong. Um, I mean, basically everything got blamed. Um, I mean, it's kind of, um, I think you can do a somewhat analogy to United States, right? Like right now we are still kind of suffering under the, after effect of the Great Recession, even though economic numbers looks like rosy, but um, like the real people, working class people are still, um, you know, s- still not that, didn't feel that, 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 that the confidence in the future. So what people do is they, they blame immigrants, right? They blame Mexican immigrants. And and same thing happened in Hong Kong. Hong, these Hong Kong youth who are, not happy, angry with their lots, they blame mainland Chinese people. You know, not even the Chinese government. They blame the mainland Chinese people for um, for causing like misery in their lives. So there was a, like a rise of very ugly nativism uh, sentiments, particular anti-mainland Chinese nativism sentiment. And uh, in fact, in 2014. Like you said, when when you were in Hong Kong, it was very peaceful, no protests, right? Um, the first big scale kind of the public protest broke out in 19, uh, 2014. That was the big Occupy Hong Kong movement called the Umbrella uh, Movement. And, yes. and the Umbrella Movement was bankrolled by the Hong Kong media tycoon, Jimmy Lai, who is like a Rupert Murdoch figure because he owns Apple Daily, the biggest tabloid in circulation in Hong Kong. And he has some personal beef with the Chinese government because he supported the, he used to run basically um, a sweater, a clothing shop and uh, called Giordano. And because he supported the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989, um, the Chinese government blacklisted his company, Giordano, he was forced to sell all his shares in Giordano and, and he took all the proceeds and started his media empire, the, the Apple Daily. And the, so the Apple Daily is 
well-known uh, uh, anti-mainland Chinese, anti-mainland Hong Kong newspaper. Now, it's, it's a tabloid that mostly focuses on celebrity gossip and but you know, then you will put in some editorials uh, uh, attacking Beijing. So, so Jimmy Lai was always uh, Beijing's public enemy number one, and, mm-hmm. and 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 he of course is not not happy about impending Beijing uh, um, uh, Beijing takeover. So in 2014, he bankrolled the Umbrella Movement, and and um, at that time. Uh, a lot of the Hong Kong, those, these Hong Kong nativists, they they crowdfunded an ad in Apple Daily, the newspaper of uh, Jimmy Lai, and it's a big poster. If you Google search Hong Kong locust ads, you will find it. It's a okay. huge poster with image of like Hong Kong, but giant locusts descending on the city. And oh my god. Yes, and these they're calling the mainland Chinese a locust, and um, and specifically. Oh, I see it. I oh my gosh, it's like yes. doom. And, it's 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 yellow. It's like fire. It's yes, uh, yes. yeah, very ominous, right? Yes, and and the 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 what it says on the poster is, uh, Hong Kongers, aren't you tired of spending? I think a million Hong Kong dollars every eighteen minutes. To have these pregnant locusts coming to Hong Kong to give uh, to give this illegal birth, illegal child because at the time um, as part of the handover to China, China agreed to keep all the laws of Hong Kong, including immigration laws. So so mainland Chinese cannot freely travel to Hong Kong. They need a they need to, a stamp on their passport to enter Hong Kong, even though Hong Kong is technically Chinese territory after 1997, and. Um, one of the old Hong Kong law was that they you don't automatically gain Hong Kong resident uh, permit even if you are born in Hong Kong, right? And and so the, the Hong Kong government wanted to keep that <laughs> keep that colonial keep that keep to that rule. But at the time there's a lot of human rights activists in Hong Kong that raise the issue, say, well, it's a human rights issue. Why are you denying people born in Hong Kong their you know citizenship? They, they stage a huge protest and eventually the Hong Kong courts, uh, you know, because Hong Kong has a separation between their courts and their uh, legis- uh, their administrative branch. So the Hong Kong Supreme Court reversed the decision and, and ruled that, you know, anybody, basically anybody who was born in Hong Kong is entitled to live in Hong Kong. And what happened then is, you know, even when you were there, right, in the 19, pre, just pre-handover days in 1990s, there was still a big difference between mainland and Hong Kong. So some mainland um, pregnant women would go to Hong Kong, uh, deliver their babies, so their babies will have, uh, you know, the Hong Kong papers, right? And and same thing is happening in the United States now, right? Like in, you know, Fox is talking about these anchor babies, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, same thing. So exactly the same thing was ha- happening in Hong Kong. So a lot of these, uh, uh, so Apple Daily was running all these scare um, stories about all these Hong Kong uh, these mainland mothers coming to Hong Kong, delivering anchor babies, uh, you know, totally using up the uh, Hong Kong taxpayers' uh, money to, to, to consume the, the medical resources of Hong Kong. That was that, what the ads was about. It was about all these lo- mainland locusts coming to Hong Kong, consuming. I them. see. I see. Yes. Yes. So, so this, 
I mean, this this was a very famous ad. Like the the, I think for most of the mainland Chinese people, they 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 you know what happened to most of them are you know part they don't really concern about what's really going on in Hong Kong, you know, about whether Hong Kong people strive for their political rights or whatever, because it's very removed from their own life. But what they do understand is this anti-mainland sentiment because it's directed yeah. against them, right? And th that's why you get very little sympathies uh, either in 2014 or today from the mainland Chinese for the Hong Kong protesters because, you know, the Hong Kong protesters define themselves as we are not the mainland Chinese, you know, we are different. Um, I mean, there, there, it's understandable to an extent, to a certain extent, right? Because they, Hong Kong was a special administrative region. They did have enjoy special political rights under the one country, two system. But the native uh, sentiment took such an ugly turn, as you can see from that poster. And, and uh, in fact, that they would... Um, one of the things that happened in the protest, this recent protest, was that they stormed um, the building of the Chinese central government liaison office in Hong Kong. So this was the old China Xinhua News Agency's office in Hong Kong. That was kind of the unofficial Chinese embassy consulate in Hong Kong during the colonial British colonial days. And after the handover, the, the central government uh, turned the Xinhua news, news agency office into the central government Hong Kong liaison office. That's kind of like the goal between, between the Hong Kong government and the central government. So that office was besieged by the Hong Kong protesters uh, last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago, and they defaced the chi Chinese uh, national emblem uh, in the front. Uh, on top of that, they painted racial slurs used by Japanese during World War II against the Chinese. It's a painted Shina. Uh, Shina is an old term for China in Japanese. It used to be a, a, a neutral term. It just means China. But during World War II, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, that term become highly derogatory. I mean, the Chinese find the term very offensive. It's, it's the English equivalent would be like chink, right? Oh, uh, okay. Yes, and but the but the Hong Kongers, in an effort to define themselves as not Chinese, they use this very derogatory term, "China," <laughs> "chink," to describe the mainland Chinese. So they painted the word "China" on the office of the, the central government uh, liaison office to Hong Kong. So instead of uh, say the the China liaison office, they painted the "China" liaison office of Hong Kong. Um, oh, and okay. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, but this kind of anti-mainland sentiment, this ugly nativism uh, aspect of the Hong Kong protest was very rarely reported, if at all, in the Western mainstream media, because we, we just want to present a narrative of these brave Hong Kong people versus the authoritarian in, in, uh, central government of China. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With the looming military Tiananmen yes. Square style yes. crackdown coming. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Very much so. And and here the way what what's being presented here is that the entire thing is about a a law change, a change yes. that you know was going to be able to extract yes. um, criminals out yes. of yeah. So that's what it was all about. Yeah. That's you it, know, it was none of this start... background is given at all. 
Yeah, it was started as the anti-extradition uh, treaty. Uh, so be because Hong Kong did not have a extradition treaty with mainland, um, and uh, you know just like Canada or U.S. doesn't have extradition treaty with uh, with China, and and so what ended up happening, um, this is especially in case of Canada, is a lot of the financial crooks in China <laughs> after <laughs> they got their uh, you know commit their financial crimes and got their ill gotten gain, they will go to Canada. Um, and because Canada have this uh, investment uh, visa, right? You can you invest like $500,000, you get a green card. So they will <laughs> invest themselves a, 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 a Canadian green card. And because Canada doesn't have an extradition treaty with China, they're, they're in Canada scot-free and, and living off their ill-gotten gains. And this has been going on for years. Um, and this is the whole capital flight thing too, yes. right? You know. Yes, yes. And we saw something similar with Russia. So. Yes, yes. And then, um, <laughs> and then, what what triggers this latest? Uh, uh, so, so <laughs> there's a lot of history on this extradition treaty bill because back in um, in the early, in the, I think back in the '90s or 2000s, there was a famous murder case in Hong Kong where a, a, a Hong Kong millionaire or billionaire their family got kidnapped and then um the criminal uh, the, the the triads who did the kidnapping they fled to china right and <laughs> because because there's no extradition treaty between hong kong and china they were arrested by the by the mainland chinese authorities and they were tried in the in the mainland Chinese courts and sentenced there. So at the time, the pan-democratic camp in Hong Kong said, you know, oh my God, no, these Hong Kong citizens are now being subjected to arbitrary uh, laws in, 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 in PRC, right? We should really have some, uh, we urge our Hong Kong government to, to have an extradition treaty with a central government so we can bring these Hong Kong citizens back to Hong Kong to per persecute under our own laws. Okay, this was <laughs> this was in 2000, but now now their position totally changed. Now anyway, it's the opposite. Okay. Yes, yes but but more recently the, the what triggered this new law is uh, a very grisly murder case. There was a Taiwanese um, guy who uh, who murdered, brutally murdered his Hong Kong girlfriend, um, chopped her up, and, and it was just a very bad case. And then he fled to Taiwan. Uh, and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong does not have a formal uh, extradition treaty, right? And, and, the, and so, so one of the impetus for, for driver for this package and extradition treaty done, um, it's a general extradition treaty, not just with mainland, but also with Taiwan. And so the, the driver was to for that because that, that very well publicized case trying to get that that Taiwan murderers back to Hong Kong to face trial. But this is Hong Kong we're talking about, like Hong Kong, just like Canada. It's it's a lot of the people who had mis financial misdealings in mainland. They run to Hong Kong and and a lot of the Hong Kong billionaire, Hong Kong oligarchs. They're also afraid that they will <laughs> themselves. That they'll get extradited. Yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So, um, so recently, I think there was a report on, 
I forgot it was Wall Street Journal or um, they, they reported about these a bunch of Hong Kong billionaires now turning out against uh, Hong Kong protests. But if you read about what they say, they actually says, oh, um, I think it was Peter Peter Wu, his name. He's one of the I think one of eighth wealthiest man in Hong Kong. Like he's a he's a he's a billionaire, and he said in the beginning I supported the wholeheartedly supported the anti-extradition uh, treaty, right? But now, you know, now with all the escalating violence, you know, I regret it because now I'm losing $1 billion in my business. Um, this is just reported kind of superficially, but what really happening is all these oligarchs who, <laughs> who had a stake into getting the extradition treaty repealed, right? And that's what they're concerned about. Uh, now they're happy because the extradition treaty was actually suspended, right? It's yeah. not, not coming back. The extradition treaty is really dead, uh, deader than dead. But the Hong Kong <laughs> government is unwilling to say that they completely withdrawn it, probably because for face-saving measures. <laughs> I see. And and but uh, you know, like for for the so for the business elite, they're they're fine now. They their their concern is to get in the extradition treaty bill pulled. Um, but but the protest went up, right? Because um, right after, because before the extradition treaty was was pulled, the, the, there was a large scale protest. Uh, you know, it was widely reported about two million people on the street. Uh, later, there was a retraction. It turns out they used satellite imaging. Um, it was reported. I, th- I forgot it was uh, in Reuters or um, or South China Morning Post that after the image uh, analysis, they realize it's more like 250,000. But I mean, still a lot of people, not 2 million, 250,000 people on the street. It was a largely peaceful protest, which was reported worldwide, which forced the government, to, Hong Kong government to back down, to withdraw the, um, to suspend, to not withdraw, sorry, to suspend the, the, anti, uh, the extradition treaty bill. But, Right after that, the protest did not stop. It escalated. And, and the day after the pro- Hong Kong government announced that it was going to withdrew the bill, a group of Hong Kong protesters, they're not the majority, a, 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 a minority group of the Hong Kong, more radical group of Hong Kong protesters, they went to the Hong Kong uh, Legislative Council building, they stormed in, um, and they broke through, they trashed the place, they occupied the place, and then they they tore down the Hong Kong flag from the from the from the legislative uh, council hall and replaced it with a colonial Hong Kong flag with Union Jack on it, right? And yeah. yes, and then at that point. You know, there are some people trying to make excuse. Oh, that that must be like a false flag operation. You know, like the, the China probably infiltrated the protests. The, some pro some some Chinese infiltrator probably did this to make the protests look bad. And then some of the Chinese pro, uh, the the Hong Kong protest leaders, they posted on Instagram the social media of themselves of their selfies inside the <laughs> legislative. Uh, Council building, flashing peace signs. Say, yeah, we did it. We took over the building, <laughs> and we took all the videos and images of them trashing the place. Um, 
uh, many of them are, are, are like are, are now they fled to Taiwan afterwards, uh, seeking asylum <laughs> in Taiwan. Um, That's after- ironic too. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> and, oh. and and but the but I so what you're point- saying is that it's it's organic now, right? It's it's not actually it wasn't actually uh, it wasn't a provocateur. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what they call, there's a narrative in the media calling it the leaderless movement, right? Yes. So, so um, Occupy was like that too. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there are still forces, <laughs> there are still people meddling behind the scenes, right? They're, yeah. They're, the leaderless is fine, but there's still people trying to influence the events. And I would like to point out to an article that appeared on New York Times called the Hong Kong protesters tactic, get the police to hit you. Um, it was written by a Hong Kong protester and and he laid out their tactic. Basically, he, he proposed what's, what they practice, what's called the marginal violence theory. Uh, they he said the Hong Kong protesters should take up what he called aggressive nonviolent uh, protest, but escalate to the point where the police will be forced to respond with overwhelming force. And and once they can make the police overreact, they can win a million people to their side. That was literally what was written in New York Times. And that was written in late June. And and so far the Hong Kong protests played exactly by that rule book. Um, you know, like, and, and not always nonviolently either, because, you know, there were so, a lot of the, the, there's a lot of journalists, a lot of cameras in Hong Kong, focus on Hong Kong right now. Um, the, the protesters would do is they would do call aggressive nonviolence. They will go confront the police. They will throw, throw projectile at the police. Um, they will do things like storming the legislative council, uh, do everything to get the police to fire tear gas at them. And then, uh, you know, everything will be caught on camera. Um, the, the, the aftermath, the, 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 the part of the police violence, I'm not defending the police brutality here, but all the police overreaction caught on video, those are what's being shown across the world media right now. Yeah, of course, of course. They're not, but they're not showing what happened before that. Just before yeah. the, before the tear gas, um, and 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 like there's a lot of screwed up things we're doing. They, uh, you know, they were harassing. So there was a general strike a couple of days ago. They the the protest. I mean, the idea of general strike is to get workers to join you to everybody to go on strike. But what general strike in Hong Kong's uh, case was these protesters, mostly students on summer vacation from school, they set up roadblocks in you know, the busy Hong Kong streets. And, and in some cases, when some drivers try to bypass the roadblocks, those, drive, those cars get stopped and they there's videos on the on Twitter of people getting dragged out of their van and beaten just because mm-hmm. they, they didn't they didn't stop in time or, or they didn't want to stop and 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 now there's like uh, uh, you know there, there's just like those are those are things are 
not really been reported. That's yeah, what the another, another thing I saw, I guess it was that a famous video in the, in the airport where yes. I saw someone explain, I'm not sure if it was you, Carl, if it was someone else, but you have the, uh, the very physically uh, superior protesters doing things. It, it, the police react, but they, they get the weaker protesters. Yes. You know, the, yes. the stronger ones run away. Yes. And the police will grab one of the stragglers, if you will. Yes. yes. And, and, you know, and brutalize them. But you, no. you never see what happened to the ones who are the, the shock troop type uh, yep. protesters. Yep. I don't want to actually, that's a bad comparison, but, you know, the yeah, stronger, I, faster ones. Exactly yeah. We're describing. Um, and, and I think in one way, in some certain ways, the Hong Kong police is, is not equipped or trained to handle such large scale protests. Uh, because, you know, Hong Kong hasn't faced this kind of political unrest since uh, the last time was 2014, but really, this kind of violence has Hong Kong hasn't seen since the 1967 protest. Um, you know that that was the pr- pr- protest that the British had to call out the Royal Marines to you know to patrol streets of Hong Kong with bayonets. And uh, this time, though, because because there are just so many people on the streets, the the Hong Kong police they are overwhelmed, they're undernumbered, and and they always. No, like the that that part in that particular video, um, the police charge into the airport, and and then the the <laughs> all the more agile <laughs> yeah. able protester ran away, and so the, the the police just tackled the closest person to to him. It happened to be a woman who looked just harmless, right? And yeah. while the police wrestled the woman to the ground, have his back turned. Then the <laughs> then then he got zerg rushed by all the, <laughs> all the other protesters um, surrounding by. They actually uh, gang up on the police and and, and tore his uh, baton from his hand and start beating the police with with his own baton. And and at, at that point, the police officer drew his gun, right? Yeah. And and, and like um, I think one of the. Western journalist tweeted that video. He said, "Well, I, I'm just it's just so lucky no one got shot, right?" So, so he I give him credit for not shooting anyone. Um, yeah, yeah. Pulling his gun, but but it, but what happened before? It does show, like you know, Hong Kong police was not it. It's not. Uh, it it does not have the capability. It looks like to handle this this type of type of unrest. Right. And, 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 and what, what they do is they just generate these, these footages for, um, for the media, which loves this kind of stuff. And <laughs> oh, yeah, that one went viral. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 and then there was something else happened to the airport uh, uh, two days ago on Tuesday. Um, so, so they went to the protester went to the airport to have set in. They, they did it this several days. Initially, um, they they were just there to protest to, to show travelers were still going through. But but most recently, they have decided to basically escalate. Right? They they they, they want to escalate until government responds to their demands. So now their demand is um, the the government publicly withdraw the extradition treaty. Uh, the 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 governor Carrie Lam resigned. Um, universal suffrage, 
right? Uh, you, uh, like, uh, and and so basically, they make all these demands that right now the Hong Kong government, for whatever reason, face facing measures, do not want to want to admit to to defeat, and and then they would just escalate escalate until they get government's attention. And first, they try to do the um, uh, disrupt the train service. You talk about the very convenient metro system in Hong Kong. I was just in yeah. Hong Kong in July. Uh, that's when they already stormed the legislative council. But as a tourist, most of the tourist area was not affected. You know, I was able to get out from the airport to Hong Kong Island uh, to Kwai Long Peninsula it, it, to enjoy the lovely city. Uh, but just last week, they did this ca- disruption campaign basically to stop all the commuter trains right and and you have the uh, uh, videos of these protesters blocking the trains from leaving and and very frustrated passengers <laughs> trying to get to work and then uh, then with the airport they, they, they then move on the protest to the airport because one of the rationale is okay the police is not gonna uh, throw tear gas at the airport and and what they did was that uh, um, initially it w- was just they, they just like show of force, and then they, they move to a point where they're, they're blocking departure gate. They're preventing passengers from reaching departure gate. And you you have saw videos on Twitter of all these very frustrated passengers trying to just trying to go home. And so there's a couple of things happen. One, uh, two day on Monday, the authorities shut down all grounded all flights from Hong Kong. Right. Um, or is it all flight or the cancel part, some of the flight? And then if I could just interrupt you for a second, I only remember there being one big airport and uh, and the metro system. I mean, the city, the city can't function without it. It's yes. You I mean, you can take a taxi here and there, but you have to use that train. I mean, yes, the city's going to be crippled without that airport and that train. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was a point. I mean, like when. When I question the the protester tactic on Twitter, people say, "Well, that that is the point. That the point of this is disruption." But I'm like, "Isn't the point is to get more people on your side? What you're doing is you're alienating these ordinary working people who are just trying to reach their jobs and and reach their family. You you are not really, you know, you're not really winning them over by these these tactics." But yeah, that, that's always that's always the balance that you're trying to yeah disrupt but not turn the public against you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So so, but with a with a um, the 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 scene got pretty ugly at the airport um, on Tuesday. Um, so first they they prevent all the pa- all the passengers from reach um, reaching their their planes, and even the <laughs> even the Hong Kong swimming team. Um, they're trying to board a flight to Singapore, and the, I, I, it's funny because the Hong Kong swimming team trying to explain to the protester, "We support your cause, we support the protest, but please, please let us board our flight so we can represent yeah. Hong Kong." And they're like, "No, no, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, you have to understand, you know, where this is a revolution, you know, why can't you sa- make the same sacrifice as we do?" <laughs> but eventually, eventually, they did let those uh, swimming team through. But what we got ugly when they had a couple, couple. Um, okay, I, 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 to be more balanced, I do have to give to the. There's there's some weird things happening beforehand. 
So there was a the, the protester did attack by these white shirts uh, in in new territory. When they went to new territory in Yuanlong train station, they were set upon by these uh, white shirt thugs, who, who many believe have the triad background, and many think police were in cahoots with the triads to the tri the triads are the organized crime. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so, so, so there was a day when the when the when the protester went to uh, new territory. They got beaten up at the train station by these white shirt thugs, and so that's another reason that that kind of escalate the protest itself. They're protesting what they see as a police collusion uh, with the triad plus the police brutality. And so, so now we have sort of guerrilla protesters and guerrilla police. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna we're yes. gonna fight all this covertly, sort of. Yes, yes. And then um, the day before, on, on Monday, they had this footage of basically plain clothed cops fighting with the protesters, right? And there was a famous video footage that was shared all around of these a young protester got his face smashed into the pavement by the by the riot police right oh. and that was shared all over um but <laughs> but i saw um from the reporter of qz.com uh, which is another uh, which is a very sympathetic uh journalist to the protest he showed an, the full footage of what happened according to her that th there were some police that were wearing civilian clothes, undercover police, starting a fight with the protesters. So the protesters starting to attack these undercover, uh, those plainclothes cops. Well, the protesters claim they don't know they're undercover cops. The protesters claim they thought they were mafia, they were triads attacking them. So, so this group of protesters, they had this man down on the ground, they were beating him with sticks, right? And, but the next thing, you know, the riot police then arrive and they, they grab one of the guy who was who was beating the guy on the ground, who was turned out to be a plain clothes cop. And then they grab that guy and smash his face to the pavement. Oops. So basically the ta table got turned on the, the, the protester. Um, but, you know, that video is not shown uh, as shared as widely as the, just the video of him with a bloody face on the pavement, right? I mean, there's violence on both sides. There's violence from the protester and the police, right? I'm not defending the police violence here. No, I mean, but as soon as there is violence, this is this is what happens, you know? Yes. It, it gets out of control, and uh, the most extreme elements are the ones who yes. dominate, and... Yes. That's when it all goes bad. Yep, yep. And 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 you, go, you all went to hell yesterday. They accused, so they arrested the protesters at the airport. They arrested a mainland Chinese traveler. They claim he is undercover cop. So he, they zip tied him, right? They tied him up. Oh, I saw him, that. Yeah. Took took his um. Uh, pour water on him, interrogated him, took his uh, took his passport, took his ID, uh, took his wallet, and uh, they Google his name. And supposedly they found a match of um, found a name match with a uh, with a police officer in mainland, right? And so they're like, look, see, 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 he's a mainland police. So they beat him for hours at the airport. They held him for. Uh, 
Um, according to the CNN reporter who was there, they held him for four to five hours and the man collapsed twice. And during that time, the paramedics tried to reach the man, but the protester blocked the paramedics from reaching him. Uh, I mean, at the time, you know, it was quite dangerous. Some of the reporters thought the man could die. And, and, and when the paramedics finally reached the man, the protester then blocked the paramedics from leaving the airport. They, they form a human wall. Um, and, and that, so this whole time on Tuesday, the entire day, the police did not show up at the airport. And, but after this man was held for four to five hours, this ordeal was broadcast live on live feed on many news organizations. In fact, my cousin in mainland China, he saw this live in China. I didn't ask him which news site he saw. <laughs> I, I wonder about that. How did he saw the live feed? Um, but, but one thing I do know is that CNN is actually not blocked in China. So maybe you saw it on CNN. Um, and and uh, because CNN runs a live feed of the, the, the live blog of the protest. Uh, but and he, CNN, my, CNN is available in China? In yeah. Mainland China? Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. I did not know that either until I went to China. But the fact is, the funny thing is, most Chinese people didn't know either because they don't go bother go go to CNN for their news anymore. <laughs> you know, like I like guess C not. Yeah. Yeah, because CNN reputation in CNN acquired uh, as much of fake news uh, moniker in China as it is in the United States now. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and and and. And I went to see, I was really surprised I was able to go to CNN and I even tweeted about it. It was like, oh my God, China lifted, uh, uh, um, lifted the block on CNN. And some reporter told me, oh, come on, CNN has been available for years. I was like, really? How come nobody know about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and so certain websites are blocked, like NYT. NYT is blocked <laughs> after they, uh, NYT was available until they, they reported on um, the previous Chinese leader, Wen Jiabao's family wealth. Uh, they, they had a front page report on the, on the, um, like the billion dollars, the, the chi former Chinese premier, Wen Jiabao's family. I remember that. I yes. Remember that. So after that, that, that New York, uh, their, their New York Times website got blocked in China. <laughs> Are there the, the same rules in, in Hong Kong as on the mainland? Or can no. you get to anything in Hong Kong? Hong Kong, there's no firewall in Hong Kong. You can't, you can't, you know, Hong Kong is wide open. Okay, uh, so all the New York Times advice to the protesters, they're able to read all that? Yep, yep, everything. And, and uh, so, I, I mean, so the, finally, after, like, my, my, my cousin, mainland cousin, he was glued. He told me he was glued to his computer screen, just watching this guy getting tortured in the airport for four, four to five hours. And he told me he was very angry. He told me he's like, I don't understand how can, from his perspective, how can a Chinese person in the airport of his own country getting tied up, tortured without any sort of protection? How could such, such thing happen? Right. And that's a perspective of many mainland Chinese people. And, they, you know, like a lot of mainland Chinese people are very mad right now after that video came out. And many of them actually are calling for the Chinese government to send in the PLA to crush the rioters. <laughs> many of them are, 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 are um, right now would support the PLA to move into Hong Kong. And, and which, 
I get to the reports of the <laughs> people, yeah. the large yeah. scale movement of the people's uh, armed police into Shenzhen, the city next door. Um, this was actually first reported in the Chinese state media. Uh, this this happened. Um, this happened on the day at, af, right after the this, this ugly airport incident, right? And basically, the the. Um, the, the Chinese state media, I think it was People's Daily, Global Times, Xinhua, and CGTN, they all had, you know, these videos out and in English says, oh, these, uh, there's going to be a large scale exercise in Shenzhen across the border from Hong Kong. They, you know, these troops, stand, these armed police stand ready, you know, to defend stability against all, um, <laughs> all provocateurs. And, and this is just to make sure I understand. This is in the English language yes. Chinese media, so they yes. want to send the message yes. that look, we've got all these troops. They're close by. Yes. So is it a warning? Is it a threat? Yes, I mean I think because it seems like it'd be a it'd be a PR disaster for it's it, it's a it's a show of force. But I think it's also there's two purposes. One is show of force to say the Hong Kong protester, but more importantly, it's for domestic consumption. Because all, okay. right now, all the mainland Chinese people who have watched the live feed of uh, this fellow mainland mainlanders got tied up and beaten. Uh, by the way, there were two mainland Chinese people. There were three mainland Chinese people that got detained at the airport by protesters. One was released early. One was this guy who was suspected to be a policeman who got held and beaten for four hours and, and beaten unconscious a couple of times. And then, then the, there was a second, there was another guy who turned out to be reporter for the Chinese state media, Global Times. And his, his video also went viral because just before, he, when, after he got tied up, the, the Hong Kong protesters searched his belongings and found a t-shirt I love Hong Kong police t-shirt, right? Oh. <laughs> and and he then he told the in front of the camera, he told the police the protester, he said, I love Hong Kong police. Now you can proceed to beat me. He said that in Chinese. And that clip went viral in the Chinese social media. And right now, like all the mainland Chinese are basically calling for vengeance they're ca they're calling for blood they want the government to do something so the central government have to be have to be shown that they're doing something right they can't be shown like standing by while hong kong is descending into chaos so one of this training exercise in shenzhen is really i think even most important purpose was to show the domestic audience oh look we have our armed police standing by we are ready you know, we have the capability. Right? Is it I, in their think, benefit to show the force, but exercise restraint? Is yes, because I think more importantly, it was a press conference gave out by Hong Kong governor, Carrie Lam, the day before. Um, at the time, there was a, I think, Sky News journalist or one. They're asking her, oh, okay, what about, are you going to meet the Hong Kong protester demands? You know, I, can you confirm that, the extradition bill will be withdrawn, right? Do you have the authority to do that or do you need approval from Beijing? Like a lot of the pointed questions, but instead what she said was, 
Beijing government has expressed full confidence in me and the Hong Kong police to handle the situation in Hong Kong. Yeah. And that's, that's all she said. And I think that, at least by that by the time of that press conference, that's a signal. She is saying there will be no immediate intervention by PLA, by the Chinese central government. They will leave the discretion to her and the Hong Kong police to handle the uh, Hong Kong protest, at least in the immediate term, right? That's, Unless, what, that's what the ambassador said too. He said yeah. the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, so 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 the 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 huge mass of people's armed police across the border. I believe that's mostly um, uh, like a PR stunt for the domestic audience consumption, and also keep in mind. China does not need to send military into Hong Kong. China has military in Hong Kong. Yeah, like, I saw you mention that on Twitter, like 7,000 PLA or something. Yes, there's, there's seven, there, there, PLA has been in Hong Kong since 1997 handover. I mean, right now in the PLA garrison in Hong Kong, there's 7,000 PLA soldiers. And they actually regularly conduct uh, anti-riot operation drills. Like they, they, they even release a, a video which I posted um, from just a few months ago. Um, like when yeah, I just saw the, that. Yeah, pretty yeah. Uh, kind of scary, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's meant to be. I mean, they they release it on an official channel with English subtitles, and they even had the had the officers yelling out in Cantonese. It's like uh, he, he said he said something basically, um, you will bear all responsibility. You know, then 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 people his soldier his soldiers were yelling, fall back, fall back, beating on their shields. And and but on the loudspeaker he keep on saying, All you protesters, you will bear all responsibility. Oh, okay, yeah. I couldn't understand what they were saying. I was yeah. just taking the visuals. But that's yeah. what he was saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so right now there's a lot of moving pieces, right? I mean, like in China, it will be a PR disaster to send PLA into Hong Kong. And I, I think some people in the media, Western media, are kind of, um, I feel they're almost kind of hoping <laughs> this happens because there's a, like Twitter is going crazy today with all these footage of these uh, army trucks and all these armed police gathering in in um, in Shenzhen and everybody was freaking out. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, it's going to be Tiananmen 2.0, Tiananmen 2.0, right? But what they don't understand is Tiananmen 30 years. I was in China in 1989 when Tiananmen Square protest happened. At that time, Tiananmen Square protest was a was a was a nationwide protest. And, and it happened in Beijing, the center of the political power. Right now, the Hong Kong protest is contained in Hong Kong. The fact that all these virulent anti-mainland Chinese nativism expressed by the Hong Kong protesters, that means very few mainland Chinese people actually support them. The, 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 the protest contagion will not spread to mainland. I mean, if anything, you know, the airport beating has united the mainland Chinese uh, more than ever. And and so the Chinese government is not facing a legitimacy crisis right now, like 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 they potentially was during 1989. I mean, they could sit back and just 
watch Hong Kong burn. I mean, they probably prefer Hong Kong not burn, right? Because Hong Kong is still very important, serving as a financial conduit of like investment into China. But for for a purpose of uh, you know the the the, the maintaining of uh, communist control on power, Hong Kong is irrelevant. Hong Kong is is like what Hong Kong protests are doing in Hong Kong. They are disrupting Hong Kong. They're not disrupting China as a whole. That's a that's a very important uh, fact because in 1993, when Chris Patton was trying to do his uh, uh, change the electoral laws of Hong Kong, back then Hong Kong's GDP was 27 percent of the entire Chinese GDP. It was almost a third almost a third of Chinese GDP is is a Hong Kong GDP. Today, Hong Kong GDP is about 2.9% of Chinese wow. GDP. Wow. That's so how, here, go ahead. And here we go again where in the West we are basing our our views and I don't know maybe even our our plans on outdated on an outdated situation. Yes. I'm really not understanding the situation. And uh, I had no idea that that Hong Kong was as isolated and less important nation of China. I had no idea that it was that that was the situation. Well, I mean, Hong Kong is still important, but it's not as important as it used to be. Right. Uh, I mean, it used, it used to, to be, be so critical. Important. Yes, it used to be so crucial. Now it's not crucial. It's still important, but not crucial. I mean, Hong Kong is still a very wealthy city compared to many of mainland Chinese cities. But right now, there, there's not that huge differential gap between Hong like between Hong Kong and Shenzhen I would say Shenzhen is a nicer pie a nicer city I mean because w- one of the reasons that Shenzhen is newer <laughs> like in all the Chinese cities right now they're, they're all the infrastructures were just built a couple of years ago they were brand spanking new I was in Guangzhou I was really impressed with their subway it was uh, air conditioned it was clean it, it has the uh, internet you know I can write Guangzhou subway for one hour without interruption for internet service because the train has internet and AC and and so so like right now the life in China is getting pretty good right I mean but but like but even yeah you, I mean not just people, yeah like but, the thing is here you you're you're seeing hints of and I don't know how widespread this is but you're seeing hints of you know well, you know, once the Chinese people see what's going on in in Hong Kong, it's going to spread. You know, no. it's going to they're <laughs> no. they're going to rise up too. And what the picture you're painting is um, entirely different than that. And it's yeah. just we don't have an accurate. I mean, I don't expect to have an accurate view, right? If countries are adversaries, you can't you yeah. can't expect to get a an accurate view. Yeah, but... I mean, even me, I mean, I'm a Chinese American. I'm constantly, extremely online, always plugging into the Chinese social media scene. Even me, it was a shock when I traveled to China just two months ago. It was a big difference uh, because I haven't been in China for um, nine years since my last visit. My last visit was 2010. And this time I saw a Every time, every nine years I go back to China, the whole place looked different. <laughs> That's the and, thing too, Carl. I mean, it's the, it's just the rapid change, the just extremely rapid change. Yes. It's shocking, you know, yes. and I wonder, it, it's not surprising that there are going to be these different 
that there'll be unrest, that there'll be difficulty yes. adjusting. Yes. Um, and the other thing I didn't realize is that there was a 50-year limit on the two yes. systems yes. Uh, situa situation. And now, you know, we're coming up on 2020. Mm -hmm. And what is it? 20 Is it 2047? 2047. That's, that's not that long. Yeah, 28 years. 28 years before before the one country two system officially become one country one system and and right i mean i mean so hong kong people have i mean it's very understandable they have this unease about future their future well right? yeah i mean i kind of hope that the good parts you know the things that are are better for for the people yeah would be adopted in china you know the the universal suffrage and so on um and I kind of don't understand why the, is it is it a governor? Uh, is that what Chris, uh, the, I'm sorry, I forgot her oh, name Chris again. Chris Patton, the last colonial governor of Hong Kong? No, the current, the current oh, leader. Carrie Lam, Carrie Lam. Carrie Lam, yeah. Uh, I kind of don't understand why they don't just say, all right, you know, we'll ditch the extradition treaty. That would, that's not the only demand, but that would take a lot of air out of the, the protesters, yeah. you know, it seems like it would do it, but here, this is a cultural thing that I don't understand yeah. clearly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like they, they, she would lose face, right? I mean, like that was, I mean, they, 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 like suspending the bill was kind of a face-saving way of of saying they they're wrong. <laughs> they misread the public opinion. I mean, she did apologize. She did apologize for misreading the public on the acceptance of the the of the bill. But yeah, I mean, like I, I still think it was uh, the the bill itself is deader than dead, and 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 I think really the extradition bill is only a trigger, right? That was a symptom. That's not exactly. A, that's that's not the underlying cause. The underlying cause is still the economic dislocation, the uncertainty about the future, um, the 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 discontentment the, the Hong Kong youth feels about their their diminished prospect and and. And then there's this um, combined with the the misdirected nativism, right? And 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 yeah, it's all it's a, like a very potential toxic mix. And and, and right, the rapid change and the rapid change. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, I think Hong Kong. See, for it's a lot easier to understand the Hong Kong youth because really a lot. What they're facing is what millennials are facing <laughs> across much of the Western world, right? Yes, now. yes. Um, and but 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 it's insane in Hong Kong in a way because you know Hong Kong's future, uh, both its its economic future lay, lays with further integration with mainland China. The the reason Hong Kong became what it was. Uh, sure, it's it's separate status, but also because it was windowed to China for all those years, um, and and right now its its decline is also because its status as win window to China was uh, it's not the sole window to China anymore. Now it has to compete with all these other Chinese cities, and um, but 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 Hong Kongers are kind of clinging on to these like their special kind of privilege they enjoy in the past and you know that that past is not returning because the, the, 
the Chinese mainland is moving forward. The, like the, the, you know, some of the stuff they do, it just doesn't make sense to me because you know they were they're so much anti mainland. They they were against the uh, high speed rail line extending to Hong Kong. I'm like, how? I mean, that does because you know their rationale is that the high speed rail line is just going to bring more mainlanders into Hong Kong. But like, how can you? Just be against more tourists who bring tourist dollar to your economy. I mean, like it's it's mind boggling to me. And 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 for to me, you know, as an outsider, I I think it's obvious that Hong Kong's economic future lays with further integration with mainland. I can understand their concern, anxiety about their political future, right? Which is a separate separate question. But right now, it's like a total rejection of everything mainland Chinese. Uh, it, it's 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 crazy, and 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 it it, it 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 manifests itself in the in the airport beating, and and I was so my mainland cousin, my other mainland cousin from my mother's side, she was actually planning to go to Hong Kong uh, this August with her small uh, daughter, and I was so I was so concerned because I went to Hong Kong in Ju- early July. Everything looked peachy, and so so when she asked me if there was any safety concerns because of protests, I'm like, no, no, you know, you almost you don't even feel the protests during the on the tourist uh, areas. And then, <laughs> yeah, week, it changed. Everything went to hell with the airport blockage. So I immediately called her up, and and luckily, luckily, she was smart enough to you know cancel her flight and and she was actually originally her plans her her flight was scheduled to fly out on Tuesday you know the ugliest night at the airport i was like oh thank wow. god thank god <laughs> it's the right decision oh jesus um yeah well well you know you've prov- thank you so much for giving us this multifaceted view of all the different factors because we're we're just not getting that. And I really appreciate it. I don't take any sides here, um, but I do worry about the kids who are protesters who, what you mentioned that it seems like, I don't know, whatever force it is, but they're almost hoping for a Chinese military intervention and yeah. you know, I wonder. I wonder if those kids like really understand what if, they got into. Yeah, I don't know if the kids who are out in the front is really uh, wanting the Chinese military intervention. I I think there's some other forces that might want Chinese military intervention because this. I I was in China during 1989 Tiananmen Square protest, um, and I remember how it went down. The, the, you know, like like. In the, nobody expected the crackdown as it happened, right? And and then most the the the, the Chinese student protesters in '89 they were very naive, they were very idealistic youth, you know, who who you know believe in socialism, <laughs> they, they, they believe in democracy, they believe the system could be improved, could be reformed, and but in the end it got very radicalized, and and the. Um, there was a. I, I would highly recommend for people who are interested in Tiananmen Square incident to watch this uh, documentary called "The Gate of the Heavenly Peace" by American uh, documentary maker. Um, I think uh, what's her name, Isabel Hilton. Uh, it's on YouTube, so you can watch all of it. It's called "The Gate of the Heavenly Peace," and and it's about three-hour documentary 
um, covered the Tiananmen protest from the beginning to end. And there was a part where the interview, one of the student leader, Cai Min, who was be just before the, the deadly night of crackdown, she was talking to this American reporter in a hotel room. And she said, you know, we must have blood on the streets. You know, she says, our fellow students don't understand, but the only way to wake up people is to have blood, uh, to have the government to spill blood. Then, only then will the government, re people realize the true nature of the state, right? But she's not telling her students. She's not telling the students who look up to her as a leader. But that was her plan to to force the 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 the, the bloodshed. And, and and she didn't come out very well in that documentary. Uh, it's highly recommended. So I feel like most people who are joining the protest, right? Most of the young people, they are, uh, you know, they're just expressing their discontent, they're demanding their political rights, but it, feel, it seems to me they're not very clear about what their end goal is. And what happened then is they end up being basically pawns yeah, uh, yeah. In, in some power struggle behind the scenes by, by other forces, right? I mean, like, we already seen the U.S. Uh, consulate political officer, Julie uh, what's her last, I can't pronounce her last name, Idu, uh, Judy Idu meeting with uh, student leader Joshua Wong in the JW Marriott Hotel in Hong Kong, that that, that photo went viral on Chinese social media. Um, you know, I, 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 I do think the Hong Kong protesters have their own legitimate uh, uh, grievances, they're legitimate, they have, a, you know, legitimate discontent, um, I feel, you know, the, the nativism aspect was misdirected. Um, they do have legitimate right to have peaceful demonstration to demanding, you know, universal suffrage. But the ways it's shaping up, it's, it's you know, it's just so many, so many, so many people are trying to dip their hands into the pie. And, and yes. And, and the, the, this this type of movement is can easily be manipulated and co-opted and and subverted and and you know we've seen that in Syria we've seen that in Ukraine and right now I I just want to lay it out there uh, you know even though Chinese government bears certain responsibility for this uh, one is you know the introduction of the bill um, two is you know the base they basically maintain the whole British colonial structure intact, <laughs> nothing changed, which, which like did not benefit m most of people in Hong Kong, not, definitely not the youth, right? But having said that, the Chinese government do not want to see instability in Hong Kong. So what they want to see is status quo, everything going on as before, even if us have the oligarchy running the place. They just want business as usual. You know, so you have to think about who exactly benefits from Hong Kong that's been destabilized, right? I mean, and those are things that's fair to think about. And I don't think, um, I can't understand why the protesters themselves they may not be thinking about those things because you get caught up in the moment. I was in China in 1989. I was a 13-year-old. Even though I, I went to some of the street protests, it's a very infectious environment when you are in yeah. that kind of a, 
like a revolutionary atmosphere. You know, you just get caught up in it. We're not, humans are not rational animals, right? We're very emotional. We respond to like this kind of mass psychology when, especially when you feel like you are on the right, right? You are. When you're you're in it, when you're in it, you definitely get caught up and I've been there myself. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And I really do hope, you know, like this can be resolved peacefully, you know, without further violence and escalation. But, you know, we can only hope. Right. I agree. And again, Carl, um, thanks so much for this perspective. I learned a lot. Uh, I kept you a lot longer than than when we planned, but I, th- I think it was worth it. And yes. uh, but do tell people where they can find your work and how they can support you, please. Yes, yes. Um, you can s- just Google my name, Carl Za. Carl is spelled with a C, so C A R L, and my last name Z H A. Z uh, is spelled Z like zebra, H like Henry, A like apple. Just three letters, Z H A. Carl Za. Um, if you Google Carl Za, you will see my Twitter account, and you will also see uh, my Twitter handle is literally just Carl Za, and. Uh, and, and you can also see my two of my podcasts. So, so one is my latest podcast, The Silk and Steel Podcast, which is on Patreon. You can also find it on Patreon or just find it on Google. It will be either, either the first or the second link show up uh, when you search my name. Or you can just search for The Silk and Steel Podcast. You, you will be the first one to show up. And I have an older podcast called Clash, which I'm not working on at the moment, but I made all the archive episodes of Clash, I think there were like 30 of them, all publicly free available, you know, so people can listen to them. Uh, you know, I, 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 we, I talk about a lot about, you know, China and as well as like uh, current events and, and history and history. I'm a big history geek. And please support me on Patreon because right now I am trying to make a living out on Bali. <laughs> that is my uh, major <laughs> income source right now. So I would really appreciate it if uh, people uh, can support me on Patreon. So and thank you very much, Joanne, for this opportunity to come to your show to talk about this uh, issue of Hong Kong and China, which I feel very passionate about. Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Definitely. Talk to you later. That's- Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Carl Za. Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Za, C-A-R-L-Z-H-A. Subscribe to his podcast, Silk and Steel, at Patreon. And listen to his previous podcast, Clash. Around the Empire podcast is independent media. Your support is really important. Please pitch in patreon.com slash Empire, or do one-time donations via PayPal paypal.me slash aroundtheempirepod. You can find all these links on our website, aroundtheempire.com. The syndicated audio podcast, Around the Empire, can be found in many places. You can find it on any mobile podcast app, or on the website, aroundtheempire.com, or on Patreon, patreon.com slash aroundtheempire, or on YouTube, youtube.com slash aroundtheempire. And hey, if you're listening on YouTube, hit the thumbs up icon to like the videos. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave me some comments, send me feedback. That's really great. I love it when people do that. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Around the Empire. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone.